parietals, parietals. I'm curious, I don't want you to respond, but just to think, do I know what that word means? It's a word we don't frequently encounter. Someone says there are parietals. In fact, as I've asked, and I've asked numerous people, have you heard this word before? If they're medically inclined or understand, they might bring up something like the parietal lobe, but chances are it's not a word most of us use. And in fact, for me, the first time I ever heard this word was at the beginning of my college days at Hope College. So funny, I mentioned this last service and actually two people cheered. Apparently, Hope is not a common place from all of us. If you ain't Dutch, you ain't much, and apparently you ain't much Dutch here. And I'm not Dutch, but I actually went, someone said Calvin. I just threw up in my mouth. I'm sorry. No, I'm kidding. It's all good. It's all good. So when I went to Hope, uh, they used the word parietals. And it was a word I hadn't heard before. It was a description I hadn't heard before. And so parietal, it, it actually, in some universities, you would have heard it in other times of life. It, it means to basically to build a wall. And the idea was that in dorm life, you should have some place that was sacred and to yourself. So what they did was they created parietal hours, which meant people of the opposite gender could not be on your floor or in your room. It was a limit. And it all sounds nice, right? Oh, it's a limit. We're protecting you. Well, where I grew up was next to MSU, and the only limit in their dorms was hide your bubble keg. So I had never heard of this idea of parietals. It was new to me. And as one who does not enjoy being told what to do, I'm show of hands, how many of you do not like when you're told what to do? It Almost the hair in the back of your neck goes up right away. We're a bunch of rebels, aren't we? We're sad little West Michigan rebels. I'm so rebellious, I mow my lawn when I want to. That's how we roll around here. So what happened to me was I did not like that there were any stipulations of times that I could not have people in my room, which, side note, uh, I never violated those times because no one ever wanted to come into my room, so it didn't matter anyway. But several years in, the earliest possible moment you could move off campus, guess what I did? I moved off campus because I will be free of these rules bound by. So if you don't live in Holland or know the area, what happens are there these homes around there, this is actually 11th Street, which is where I moved to. I moved to 11th Street to a home there with a bunch of guys. Now, I was not prepared for the home I moved into. There were things I was unaware of. For example, as winter hit, which it does, I found out that windows were a loose term for the house I lived in. There was a lot of wind gusting in and outward from them, and the heat that we churned was kind of like having something outdoors because it just dissipated wherever we went. Now, I wish I could tell you that was the worst part of our house, but that wasn't. In fact, Dave, who'd lived there before me and was still there when I moved in, we joined Dave and some other guys. Dave had a tally sheet on the wall, and the tally sheet said, today's dead mice. <laughs> yes. And we set many traps, and it was almost like drums. They went off lots. It was not uncommon to hit double digits with a mouse kill or the rat kill, if you will. Now, I made it through those years. My, who ended up being my wife, still married me, having to visit me in this place, which I am so grateful for her godliness and character, despite the grossness of where I lived. Some years later, I decided, hey, I'm just going to drive by there and see the old house. Now, this is 11th Street, and you won't know it, but there used to be a house here. I kid you not, it was the only house that was gone for some time. Now, they've knocked other ones out. The only house left, and not, not kept, 
my house. Do you know what that means? I kid you not, the house was condemned. They tore down the house I lived in because it was not safe to live in it. You understand what condemned means, right? It means the foundation's bad, everything about it is not good, no one should live there, it is a death trap. That is what it means, you're welcome. Now, I give you that picture because Paul, who we're gonna look at a writing of his to the church in Rome, begins to address the human condition and he uses the word condemned. Now, Paul, I wanna give you a little background, is writing to the church in Rome. He's been in other parts of Roman, kind of the Roman Empire, particularly out much more to the east of it. He has been watching churches grow, watching the people of God become awakened to the resurrection of Jesus and has spent some time in Ephesus in particular, which is a major city, And now he's writing to this church in Rome to a bunch of people, Jews and Gentiles, that are discovering the resurrection of Jesus, and he's trying to explain to them what this all means, and he has to give them, because they have different perspectives, the good news and the bad news. In case you don't know, if there's resurrection, what else is there? Death. So Paul uses this image, this idea of condemnation, this idea of the mess and the brokenness of us. Now, we're going to move into the chapter where he gets to the good side, but I want to just give you a little picture of what Paul says. So as he's writing, he's writing to people who live by the Jewish law, and he says, listen, the Jewish law has great things to it. It helps us to know what is right and what is wrong, and with our minds, we want to do that. And then he speaks as well outside of it, but he says this, while our minds want to do this, he says, you and I have a sin nature that doesn't do what our minds want to do. And he says it this way, I do what I don't want to do, and what I don't want to do, I do. You got that, right? It means I don't want to do these things, I do them anyway. And things I want to do, I seem to be drawn in a different direction. And then he gives an example. He says, it's like this. The law revealed for one of its many things, the Jewish law, that you shouldn't covet. And he said, while it awakens me to that awareness, and I even want to not covet, guess what I'm drawn to do? I covet. When I become aware, sin draws me to covet. In other words, you and I actually have a sin nature that we are inflicted with and a slave to. That's how he describes it. In essence, every one of us is condemned by the very nature of sin that we live in. Sin and death draw us to the things that are bad. Now, that is not an easy message in our day and age. Hey, we're gonna reframe sin for people. And so we have one side, and oftentimes what we do is we say, well, these areas are who I am, therefore it's not sin. In other words, God made me the way he made me, and everything about it is good. There's no bad, we're not condemned, it's just who we are. Then there's another part of us, and many of us, who we believe in this idea of the way we shouldn't live and want to live differently, but we are constantly performing, trying to be enough, to do enough, to win enough, to prove enough, and to not lose enough. In other words, very simply, many of us would say that we're Christians and Jesus died for us and it's a new day, a new resurrection, but the way we live says God is constantly disappointed or 
God doesn't care and it's all good. Which, by the way, if you're in that world, usually if you don't agree with that world, you're just as condemned. So it's just a different standard of condemnation. It's its own. So you're welcome. I knew it's a resurrection day. Let's get to the condemnation and the crud, right? That's where we have to begin because, by the way, you can't know the power of resurrection if you don't understand the power we're under of death, of sin, of struggle. So I just want to tell you this for every single person listening with me. We all, every single one of us, have that nature and struggle. No one is better and no one is worse. We all are unable to overcome this. And and it, it, it kind of makes me both broken and sad because what I've discovered is most of us get that. We just either hide it or we try to outperform it or we try to couch it differently. But at the end of the day, most of us live with voices inside and outside telling us you're not good enough, you don't do enough. There's no way you're going to get out of this. And just to take it one more step on sin, like for me, one of the changes as I've gotten older has been I'm not trying to know my sin so I can quick overcome it and make everybody feel better for what I've done, whether it's internally or externally. I want to know the pain it causes and ache over that. Because sin causes pain. When you have a foundation that's not working, there's a whole lot of rats running around in our lives and a whole lot of mess moving through our homes. And so you're welcome to get started. Where I want to take us, though, is where Paul does, and it's, it's actually somewhat ironic because as he talks about all this battle within him and he says, well, I want to do what's right, but I can't, he then just makes this kind of turning comment that what Jesus has done changes things. And then he describes it, and that's where we're going. What does this resurrecting life look like? And today we're going to build the foundation of understanding, and the next five weeks we're going to look at how do we actually move and live into this. But if we don't believe it and don't get it, it's hard to move into. So we begin there where Paul begins as he turns us. He says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation here does not mean it's a verdict like, I just, I condemn you, it's not good enough. It means it's the actual cost and literally the punishment that happens by how we live and what we do. And so Paul now is making a shift. There's no condemnation in Jesus. There's something different that happens in what Jesus has done. And while I know many of us who've even been around the church for a long time, they go, I'm forgiven, I'm free but we don't live that way, believe that way, or even tell ourselves those things. I'm always amazed when I ask people how things are going, how guilty they feel when I see them. You should be a pastor and run into somebody who hasn't been around church for a while. Hey, I know I haven't been there for a while. It's been really busy. I feel so bad. Like, Like they're surely telling me already their disappointment with themselves that they've gotten because they see me. Do you know what it's like to be the person they're disappointed to say, oh, oh, no. That is what it's like. Some of you are that way too. Oh, I said, gosh, we're going to go talk to him. Oh, yeah, you know, the last couple of years I've just been home. I forgot to get up. <laughs> feel so bad. Or you get the thing where you ask people, hey, how's it going? Like, this is a common question. I wonder, how's it going with you connecting with the Lord? Do you know what I almost always hear? Oh, it could be better. It could be better. And it's what they say to me, but guess what we all think? Most of us think God's disappointed and disheartened by us most of the time. 
And what I want you to understand in this is not, I'm not changing or even having you get a pass on how you live or what you do. We'll get into that. What I'm giving you is a difference to know that you're secure and that you're loved. Just picture it this way. I, I still, it's funny the things that you'll remember. So I played football in high school. Every time I say that, I feel like I have to qualify it. I did play football. It wasn't on a mini team or anything. I actually played. Uh, and uh, I remember one game I had a, a bad play in particular, not that I didn't have others, but my coach pulled me aside and in the, you know, in the 80s, they scream at you. You're like, oh, thank you. I feel better about myself now. I, I wonder how some of the young people would do today with a coach. You suck, you're horrible. Thank you, coach, I'll go get better. What I remember, though, is I defended it and blamed, and he benched me the rest of the game. And what always stuck with me was, it was like to say, not only you have a problem, but you don't get to be do this anymore. And I remember the thought of condemnation, as if God would say to us, you blew it, sit down. You blew it, sit down, I'm disgusted with you. And what Paul is saying, on the heels of recognizing his own struggle, he says, guess what? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, what Jesus does on the cross and brings about is a new foundation. It's like he's taking the very foundation of our lives and going, I want you to build this differently. And it's not you building it. It's what God is building in you because of what he's done. And he's going to continue to clarify this for us, what this means and what it does. But I want to ask a question before we go on, a question that I'd be curious if you answered it honestly how you would. And this is it. Does resurrection start now? In other words, does what Jesus did by dying and rising affect your life now? Or is it a thought for you that I'm always going to fail, I'm always going to struggle, God's always going to be disappointed with me, and I just hope there's enough kind of change in my pocket and enough of this that when I die, Jesus will be happy enough with me whether reluctantly or excitedly, to let me through. In other words, we often live like we don't believe this. And what I want to pose for us in this series is, it is true. In fact, my hope, I could say to you, well, there's no condemnation. You go, oh, I feel better. It's all gone away. But can we agree that lots of forces in our life keep telling us that's not true? If you wonder, if you struggle with the idea that there's no condemnation in Christ, if you struggle with the idea that Jesus' resurrection changes the foundation of your life, ask this, do you ever treat life that there's something to gain and you've got to work hard to gain it? Can we agree that we live life this way? And I don't just mean in the workplace. Like, I'm not giving you a pass. Everybody gets, hey, you all get a badge. You're a Jesus follower. Don't do anything. Just sit on your butts. And That's not what I mean. But what I mean is, we live life to say, I've got something to gain. I need to keep working at this somewhere in life. I need to do better. And do we not give that message moment by moment and day by day? And by the way, if you wonder how you see the face of God and how you struggle with them, most of us put the faces of our parents on them. And I don't mean it as an indictment. I'm a parent too. I'm a grandparent. And I ache thinking, I don't want my kids to struggle to see who he is by the way I conditionally live disappointed or harsh on them. But let's be honest, we live wondering, what do I have to gain? And it's not just what I gain, it's what I lose. How many of us are fearful of what we might lose if we don't do this well enough? And take it one more step, how many of us are trying to prove something all the time? 
Have you ever done this? You sit down with somebody and you don't just tell them what you're doing, you want to impress them by what you're doing? Come on. Do you never try to impress people? I'm so secure, I don't impress anybody. Ah. It's funny, I do this. I regularly catch myself and I work so hard to try not to. But when people ask me if I'm a pastor, I tell them. But if they're in the area, I t- sometimes I'll say, hey, we, you know, we have three campuses. Well, we got just one. We got one in here and one in there. Because I think it might be impressive. As if to say, I'm going to prove to you I'm important. Which, by the way, isn't true. But can we agree that all of us are always often in many ways saying, I've got something to gain, I've got something to prove, I've got something I'm going to lose. And this is really hard for us to believe, let alone walk in. And today we're going to look more at how we can actually believe this. And in the weeks ahead, we're going to learn what it means to walk in it with God's help and his way. And I have to tell you, one of my favorite things about this whole section is knowing that Paul goes, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I want to do. In other words, I struggle, but I know this is true. Even as the Lord is building a new foundation in my life, I know the struggle is still present. And he offers both a foundational change and I think help to actually walking into it. So this is where he continues after he says no condemnation. He says, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now you and I don't use words like law very often. It's not a common thing. We talk, hey, what's the new law you're talking about? Oh, you know, there's a law about speeding. There's a law about... And so we tend to think of laws as rules that are given that we have to follow at least while people are noticing. We have lots of rules we bend around, don't we? Any of you guys? Well, I already know you're rule benders because when I asked if you liked rules, like three quarters were, no, I hate rules. So you're with me. You like to find uh, ways around them. But that's not really what Paul means here is rules and ways around them that way. Here the word for law is about authority and about principle and about the idea that a law is something that happens. It's not something you dictate. So, So... We have laws, physical laws of nature. If I grabbed something here and I held it up and let go, what would happen? It would fall down. It's a law of nature, gravity, right? If I bet all of my money on the Detroit Lions this year, what would happen? It's the law of failure. It will lose everything again. Predictable, right? So Paul is using this idea of law to help us understand we know there's predictability. And he says, listen, there is a law of sin and death. In other words, you and I have a foundation that's condemned, and no matter how hard we try, or how hard we try to reframe, both happen. Oh, Jesus nearly means sin. You know, he made me this way. If I failed, it's God's fault. If I did this, that's how God made me. In fact, even the things I like, maybe they're not even what we think they're supposed to be, but it doesn't matter. God made me this way. What, what a great new line to place. We've moved from working too hard and not getting anywhere to just deciding we're going to reframe it. <laughs> if it's not this, I don't have to deal with it. Paul is dealing head on with sin. He's not flaking over it. And he's saying, guess what? There is a law of sin and death. In other words, every one of us is subjected to our own destructiveness and a condemned foundation in how we live on our own. What we tend to do is we tend to talk about this with other people and their failures and ignore our own or hide our own. I'm not here for us to point to everybody else, by the way. Just look inward. 
just examine inward that he's saying when Jesus came, there is a new law of the spirit and that one gives you life and freedom. In other words, what Jesus has done in dying and rising gives you and me a new foundation. We can actually live differently and not be condemned in how we live. We have a new foundation being built. And that's why I wanna be clear. When I say no condemnation, these three words help me to understand it. Because if I'm free, I have nothing to gain, I have nothing to lose, and I have nothing to prove. When I'm free, I don't have to fight to gain. When I'm free, I don't have to fight to protect what I may lose. When I'm free, I do not have to prove to the world around me and the people around me I'm okay. Let me give you a simple example from Jesus' life. It's fascinating to me. There's a moment in him walking the earth when everybody is clamoring for him to be king because they're so impressed with him. He's going to do it. He's going to take Israel back up. And guess what he does? Nothing. He is not even turned by their accolades because he has nothing to gain and nothing to lose and nothing to prove. Let me give you another moment in his life. They all want to take him out and kill him at some of what he teaches and says. And he doesn't go, oh, no, they're not happy with me because he has nothing to gain and nothing to lose and nothing to prove. He knows the Father. He knows the love of the Father and the way of the Father, and nothing moves him. I, I want you to have a picture for what this can mean and be because that's what he's promising and offering. That's what Paul has become aware of. Even in his own struggle, he's become aware of it. And, and let me, I want to give you just a couple of thoughts on what you might do in this area of sin and death to kind of protect yourself from it. So these are common things I watch, and, and I do them too. One of them is when we have a problem or a sin that, that peaks out in some way, we rationalize it. Have you ever done this? Oh, I did that, but you know, the circumstances were my, I think it's a gray area. We're the masters of gray. I don't think God would really care about that so much. Another piece we do is we blame other people. I'm rubber and you're glue. Whatever hits me bounces off and sticks to you. It's your fault. You did this, not mine. I'm going to blame someone else. Another thing that we do is we say, that's not even really a sin. What you used to call it, it's no big deal anymore. We, we have changed our lifestyles in so many ways, and the ways we pick to change them, we say it's not really an issue. What we do is we ignore, we deflect, we blame. And see, Paul's not giving us a pass. He's just saying it's a new day to be honest about it, to actually let this be true, because if we have nothing to gain and nothing to lose and nothing to prove... You and I can actually face our sins and messes without fear that God's going to go, that's it, too much. That's it, I'm not going to be around you. That's it. You way took it too far. There's no way I would ever love you again. And, and I ache today because I know there are many of us who go, you don't know how much I've done. You don't know how long I've done it. You don't know how big the hole is that I built or dealt or messed up on. My foundation is so rotten. I go, not even on the radar for God. Man, he loves you, and what he did is stronger than what you've done. Let me listen how Paul continues on this. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son. 
I, I get a little concerned. This word weakened, we can hear it as it's just not strong enough and we have to try a little harder. And any of you who are high achievers, you know how this goes. I'm disciplined. I get after things. You'll hear you can't do it and you're going to find a way to challenge and keep pushing yourself. Weakened doesn't mean you can't quite do enough. Weakened here means you can't do anything. You are basically unable, beaten down, and beyond repair in weakness. In other words, the flesh of us makes a way that you and I could never overcome. Now, for some of you today, that should be life-giving. Stop trying to gain, to protect from losing and from proving and realize what Jesus has done was something we could never do. Our flesh is weakened. In other words, you and I have the foundation in us that we will do things that destroy and wreck life. I'm so sad. I meet with a lot of people. Uh, and people, you know, they share their life with you when you're a pastor. And, and some of my friends, some of my own family, just people I've known over the years, I listen so often to people who do lots of great things and I hear their, just their pain that it's never enough. And I ache that we don't realize we're no different than each other. We're all weakened in the flesh. Like you and I, we all struggle. And we're so busy trying to couch sin in a way that is palatable or point out certain sins that we're not just facing our own sinfulness. Every one of us. So when I listen to people, I break with them because I go, listen, that's me too. That's all of us. He says, we're weakened by it. We can't do it. And then he continues, God did it by sending his own son. God did it. God did it. God did it. We even celebrated Easter last week. We celebrated the, re the resurrection. And yet here's the crazy part. You and I don't live as if God did it. We live as if God did something and we hope we can live up to it now. But everything Paul's saying is God did it. He sent his son. He's the one who came in, in the flesh and he came to be a sin offering. And this is my favorite part. He condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, not only does Jesus say you're forgiven, his very death and his resurrection actually condemn sin nature itself. Now, I realize we can't fully grasp that, but what would it be like if you and I began to grasp it more? You realize what I'm saying right now, right? I know you have that wonderful West Michigan calmness. Hmm. Yeah, okay, so Jesus died for me. He took out all of that mess. That's kind of nice. No, no, it's not nice. It's revolutionary. It's unexplainable. There's no way you and I could deal with our own mess and what we've caused and the very nature of sin. And not only did Jesus die to forgive, he died to put to death sin nature. He condemns it by his death and resurrection. Come on. You and I might not fully get it, but every part we get, we should be overwhelmed by that. And you should be incredibly enthralled and excited. So I'm picturing it in my mind. You're jumping around. You're screaming. It's amazing. I know you're, oh, that's nice, interesting. Hmm? Yep, okay. But, and I can't infuse it, but I'm, I'm telling you, if we don't know this is amazing, we don't fully grasp it. Like, I want you to get this more. 
I want the person who goes, you don't know the stuff I've done, how many times I built things for myself, how many people I've lived so that I could get what I want. And even the things I do that are good, I do for myself. If you knew me, you couldn't love me. And you go, nope. Nope, same nature I have. And you don't realize it, but the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus condemns that mess in you and offers you resurrected life. Wow. That is overwhelming for us and beautifully overwhelming. That's the case Paul is making right now. And I love it because, man, the people Paul was with were messed up dudes and dudettes. Like he gives a list of them and different things like, hey, you know some of you were? And he literally lists their sin patterns out. And they go, boy, everybody else would have looked down on us. He goes, ah, God doesn't, God doesn't at all. In fact, the irony is the only people God seems to be more disheartened by are the people who think they're better than others falsely. And all he's frustrated with is that they, they're blind to their own rotten foundation. And they somehow think they built a better house. Nope. None of us. Not one. Paul is going to finish with us, and we'll, I want to come back to what this all means with where we're going, though, for, this week, for the weeks ahead. He says, in order that this happened, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. In other words, the work of God is doing it in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, the next five weeks, we're going to look into what does that look like to live according to the Spirit. And make no mistake, this is not something you'll do enough or achieve enough. You will learn, and we have to learn what a partnership looks like. What is it to be dependent on the Holy Spirit, and what is it to still take part in it and act, but act dependently? That's a dance, by the way, in case you don't know. I told you before, no condemnation. This is how I want you to understand it. You want to know you're not condemned? There's nothing to gain. There's nothing to lose, and there's nothing to prove. You can live in freedom. And I want to address two particular groups of us and then even give us one litmus test for how we can learn to walk in this. Many of us are trying to achieve our way to please God. We might do this in every facet of our lives. And by the way, you are rewarded for achievement in our culture. I'm not saying that being rewarded isn't a good thing. I'm saying it's confusing when we establish that in our lives. Well, if I achieve enough, maybe God will be happy. If I do enough to make up for it. And then sometimes we just keep in the back of our minds the years of failure and the years of what we've done that are painful. And we think, I got a long list to come out of. And it's a hole we can never get out of and something we can never do. But what I want you to understand is God never intended for you to. Like you're playing the wrong game. Some of us need to stop trying. Stop working so hard to get ahead and gain. Stop working so hard to fight that you don't lose. Stop working so hard to prove to all of us around you that you're okay or you're better than because it's not how God sees you or how you actually are. And in case you don't know, you will never get where you want to that way. I have never met someone who achieves that finally goes, oh, I got enough. I did it. People who achieve are like, oh, oh, what's next? You know who some of the most dissatisfied people are? The people who achieve. Oh, I got there. Oh, it's next year. What am I going to do now? Oh, next week. What am I going to do now? I'm as good as my last show. I'm as good as my last sale. I'm as good as my last leadership moment. I'm as good as my last fill it in. 
never get there. Now, there's another group of us, and this is growing in us all across the board, where we're redefining what it means to be who we are in lots of ways. And so however we are, whatever our propensities are, whatever our inclinations are, we act like, guess what? That's who God made me to be. It's all good. Jesus is loving and doesn't care about this law of sin and death. They probably would even, some of us don't even think it matters. But it matters. It matters in your friendships, in your relationship, in your life. Like Jesus didn't do it to get us. It's the way it works. And you and I are all drawn to things. We have good things we're drawn to. We also have things we're inclined to that aren't good. So when you decide what's good and what's not, you're self-deciding that. And it's not true. And this is the real simple litmus test for me. It's, it's not saying I have to be valued this way or I have to do enough. It's going in all of it is the only thing that gives value in who you are is God's very love and presence in your life. It's knowing the Father loves you. It's knowing the Son died for you. It's knowing the Spirit gives life to you. That's what creates security, that there's nothing to gain and nothing to lose and nothing to prove. Now, let me give you a simple litmus test. When you come across a pattern or a problem in your life that is sinful, that hurts other people or hurts yourself, this is how you know you're moving in this direction. You're actually okay to face it. What I mean by that is you don't look and go, oh, it's all good. You look at it and go, I don't want this in my life, Lord. I don't know if I can change it, but I need you. And you actually can talk about the areas you struggle in and the things you don't do well and the things that are destructive because it doesn't weigh in on whether you're okay or you're not. You see, no condemnation doesn't mean we don't talk about problems. It means they don't rattle us or shake us because we have nothing to gain and nothing to lose and nothing to prove. Can you let the Lord and let those around you show you what isn't working because you're safe and you're secure to do it? That's living condemnation-free. Let me pray for us. Lord, I, as I ask each time, I pray you'll just speak. And I don't know what people need, but I know that you love each person here and that you do not, you didn't die and rise to just have them live in condemnation or performance or even modifying what they think so that it doesn't matter. So I am asking that your unabated, your unquenchable love would be filling them. I pray we would begin to believe how there's no condemnation in you, that we would grow in our security of you, and we could live with nothing to gain and nothing to lose and nothing to prove. Continually speak and lead us into this in your name. Amen.